Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres-Rodriguez, personal finance expert, speaker, writer, and business coach. I teach women of color how to build wealth and gain financial independence through side hustles and investing. On this show, we're serving up POC-friendly personal finance knowledge, always with a side of sass. We're talking about how to make dinero, how to keep it, and how to make it grow. If you're ready to become poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Mi gente, welcome back to another episode of Yo Quiero Dinero, the podcast. This is your host, Janice. And let me tell you, we're going to have a white boy on this show today. But not just any white boy, because this is not a place where I entertain finance bros at all. I'm really a big supporter of people who are true allies to our community. And this next guest is the definition of an ally. We're going to be talking to Georgie Roikman, better known as Financialism. This guy makes bomb-ass YouTube content and Instagram content, and he is out here teaching everybody who will listen about investing. He is all about breaking down the barriers to investing, and what I love about Financialism's content is that he calls out not only the micro issues that we have when it comes to like our own personal lack of financial literacy and like how we can overcome that, but he also is completely cognizant of the fact that every inch of our institutions avoid teaching people about finances, such as how terrible credit card debt is or how investing works. 
It's his belief that this is a design that perpetuates so much inequality in our society. Obviously, institutional change is needed, but can we really afford to just sit around and wait for the government to become more inclusive? I don't think so, honey. So it's going to be up to us to change the situation for ourselves to then become this wave of revolutionaries that change the trajectory of wealth building in this country. Financialism is totally giving away tons of free information via social media. I think, honestly, he should be charging for the quality of the content that he's putting out there. And he's in it for the purposes of educating, which I love. I'll rock with anybody who's an ally to educating our community and getting us in a place where we can own our finances, right? That's what it's all about. So I can't wait to hop into this conversation. Without further ado, here's my convo with Georgie Roikman, better known as Financialism. All right, so today we are talking to Georgie Roikman, who is also known as Financialism Online. So hi, Georgie, how are you? Hey, I'm super duper ready to go. I'm excited to have you here because I discovered you through Investing Latina, and you are basically taking a unconventional approach to breaking down people's mental blocks when it comes to investing, right? You're presenting this information in a way that's really fun and relatable, but you do have a greater purpose with what you're doing. And so I can't wait to get into all of that with you, but why don't you go ahead and start off with introducing yourself? Yeah, so I'm Georgie Financialism. Um, My whole thing is investing for the last five years. Uh, I have a lot of different like interests that I go into, like learning about space and behavior and psychology of beliefs. But like investing is something that leads to practical, actionable change. So when I saw that, I was like, okay, I'm gonna prioritize this because, uh, like, if I know this information, a 10 minute conversation with a friend can literally change their life, and that's power that like isn't well advertised, and mm-hmm. it. It's something that that I think everyone should know who can and they have access to it online. So that's what I've been doing and pushing it as hard as I could once I learned its power. Got it. That's awesome. So you are actually a behavior therapist in your regular life. So I'm curious, like, how did you even go about with that uh, career trajectory and where did it kind of spin off into now you're so passionate about investing? Yeah, well, like I said, I have so many different interests, like like I said, like space travel and stuff. So um, I take everything, like you see me going like hard on Instagram with investing, but I'm actually equally passionate about like behavior analysis and that whole world. And I'm actually trying to eventually create like a course where I talk about the intersection of analyzing behavior and finances because a lot of behavior analysts track behavior, but what is finances? You're tracking your own behavior. You're analyzing yourself and you're trying to change your behaviors. So I think the two worlds interline so much. And I got into behavior analysis after I graduated school and I had no idea what to do. And I had the privilege of like not panicking and finding work, but um, so I had about three months where I just took every opportunity I could. I did uh, parties for kids where I dressed up as like Superman and Batman and like blew up <laughs> balloons. Yeah, I did all of that. Um, 
uh, was walking around the streets. People were taking photos. They were like, it's Batman, kids running up. So <laughs> that was fun. I also grinded away at a restaurant, which was um, a family friend who who like was like, okay, come on board. And I don't know anything about food. I actually have a food phobia. It's not diagnosed, but like I sweat when like I see ketchup and people are like, you have to eat this. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to do that. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And then one of the, the third job I had was working at like a company uh, doing behavior therapy with uh, usually children on the autism spectrum. But there was a few older folks that were like of age, like 18, 19 that I worked with. And I really, really loved doing that at the same time as like learning about finances and all of that. So I was growing in both fields at the same time. Interesting. Okay, so I'm curious because we all have a money story that is formed by how we're taught about money when we're growing up. So I'm curious what your money story is and what your relationship with money was like growing up. Yeah, totally. So I think what makes my story stand out a little bit is my is really my mom's story, right? So I consider myself a person of a lot of privilege, but it came on it came from my mom who was a migrant. Uh, we both have like refugee status stamped in our passports uh, coming from the Soviet Union and having like a uh, Jewish heritage, which is uh, really looked down upon. When my mom married my dad and she got the last name Reukman, she was shocked. Like when she found out his last name, she knew like people would persecute her for the last name and uh, she would be turned away in a lot of like social circles because in the 90s being Jewish in the Soviet Union was really difficult. Um, but it, what was even more difficult for her was moving to this country and then my dad just never came. He just never showed up. So she was basically stuck here with no English and a nine-month-old baby, which was me. And so she has this scarcity mindset and no matter how much money or how much success she achieves, she's always like, it's never enough. I don't know, you know, how much I actually need to sustain myself forever. And I think that her like anxieties kind of pushed me into the world of investing in stocks because people who invest are usually the most comfortable and peaceful when it comes to uh, their, their mindsets about money. And I think that definitely played a role. Now, growing up, I was an only child, so that kind of gave me another advantage where I had every game, every toy I ever wanted. Uh, my mom says I never really wanted much, so everything she could do, uh, I she did. So I always had everything. Um, then I started playing uh, Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! and an online game called RuneScape. And I was about eight years old when I started that. And I noticed like a lot of the bigger kids were targeting my cards and they were like trading me a whole bunch of shinies. And like I had a suspicion something weird was happening here. And then I learned about like the internet and I started looking up prices of cards, which was very difficult back then because uh, the internet was just kind of getting started. So I was going through like books that listed prices. And that's how I learned to protect my valuables by learning what their value is. And I actually made like a. Uh, enough money trading cards at like age 12 by that time where I could like get any card that I wanted uh, just by like knowing the prices and knowing when a deal was good or not. Same thing with uh, the online game RuneScape. I got ripped off for like, I lost like 10 months work in a minute, which I think prepared me for the stock market because we have crashed. <laughs> 
yeah, everything gets wiped out there. You can have like, like I just had five years gains wiped out in a week during like when Corona was like getting started and people were panicking about that. Um, so the game kind of protect me, protected me for that. And a lot of like my money values comes from like those games and watching my mom. But someone else that I have to mention that really framed my money mindset was my grandma who grew up like most of her life in communist Russia, where like capitalism was evil, uh, growing wealth wasn't looked at as like something amazing, but people still did it in other ways. They collected rugs, there was like black markets for jeans and things like that. But my grandma was like a true communist. She like would tell my grandpa, you can't sell extra fish that you caught. That's illegal. You have to give it away. Um, but wow. she, yeah. She also grew up a world as a child of World War II. So if my mom had the scarcity mindset, my grandma definitely had it. I, I could see how it affected her mental state. And she always had what she needed. She, she would hoard things, essentially, like newspapers, uh, food, honey, um, and money. So she would get any social security check she would get, she would save like mo maybe 90% of it. So when my mom had money troubles, and she did, being a single mom, there were times where like we moved to an apartment and, uh, an, sorry, a condo, and they were like, okay, uh, now everyone has to pitch in $10,000 so we could fix the roof. And that happened out of nowhere. And I just remember like my mom crying and my grandma, who came from like in, I would say, an even worse condition than my mom, was just like, that's okay. Like you never cry over money. I have it, you know, mm. and, and World War II really caused that mindset of her like saving, being ready for like things that are just unpredictable, like all of a sudden $10,000 or else like you can't live here. Yeah, I mean, that makes so much sense. And I think like a lot of people are realizing the importance of having those types of emergency funds, because for a lot of people like COVID-19 is the closest thing to like chaos and catastrophe that like many people are experiencing, especially here in America, I think we're so privileged to be so far removed from some of the conflicts that people experience throughout the world. And so, yeah, I mean, like, I can totally get where your grandmother was coming from. I feel like a lot of people from that generation, my grandparents included, they're just like, they are okay with just the bare minimum. And like, they're, they're just able to survive. They just have this innate ability to survive, even with just the barest essentials. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the reasons why we connected online and why, um, you know, I wanted to bring you on here is because I feel like we have this same mindset when it comes to the power of building wealth and investing, right? Like yeah. as a person of color and as a Latina, for me, I feel like building wealth is something that I'm not really supposed to be doing based on how the American system is set up, right? And so I think you resonated a lot with that. So I'm curious where, like what your perspective is on investing. Yeah, I think uh, that investing is one of those things that if people just knew how easy it is, now it's not accessible to everyone and that's a reality, but there's so many precursor behaviors to investing that is accessible, like knowing how credit cards work, knowing uh, what credit is for, knowing how the school system might target you based on your demographics and give you loans and, and uh, 
private companies will come to you and give you more loans with super high percentages. And you just have no idea what that means. So people are being taken advantage of because of their lack of knowledge, which is not their fault. Of course, it's not taught to you. It's not under your nose, but it is accessible. And what by accessible, I mean, if you have an internet connection, if you have a phone, if you have a public library, although COVID made it hard for public libraries, but if you do have access to that, you do have the internet and you can, you're 10 minutes away from answering any financial question you have or creating a shield of knowledge around you to protect you from these companies that are predatory and they are targeting people who usually are not of wealth, you know? Um, and there's, of course, like a lot of race and gender involved in that. And it's highly skewed of who knows what based on those categories, whether by design or coincidence, um, it's it's a reality. And people mm-hmm. need, to, need to protect themselves from that. And I learned that's why, like, I started telling all of my friends because I live in North Hollywood and uh, like, unlike the rest of the world, like most of it isn't white. And I'm like one of the only white kids that in all of my classes. So like mm-hmm. I got I got that perspective from there and I'm actually I consider that a great privilege because Soviet Union everyone looked the same, you know. Over here my mom had a culture shock and I was like, what do you mean this isn't normal? Like she's like this is crazy. Like everyone is different, you know, and that played a role and I got to see like family struggling and I got to see like my mom's own like white privilege and also like pretty privilege, like helping her because she started with nothing. And there were all these other families who I knew were hard workers. And it's like, no matter how hard you're working, there's these barriers, you know, and my mom never had them. And it's just like a cultural gap that I'm trying to fill. And I think investing is one of the ways to do that. I see more millennials um, from like all sorts of backgrounds telling their parents, wow, if you did this, if you did that, when it comes to like buying stocks, like 10 years ago, like we would be in a better place. Yeah, I think this generation, millennials are really changing the way that people talk about money. And just, I think we are the first generation that has the level of access to information on this scale. So we really owe it to ourselves to inform ourselves and educate ourselves. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing to, to contribute to that discussion because I think it's so important. I I appreciate that because it it literally is like something as necessary as like having a friend that knows about like cars and being a mechanic. Like I was like, I don't know anything about that, you know? And like Mm -hmm. like the power of someone telling me like in 10 minutes, they could like check out a car, like it's practical. And something like buying stocks is just as practical as knowing how a car works. Absolutely. So I want to get into how you actually started investing in the stock market. Can you walk us through what that looked like? Yeah, definitely. So as a behavior analyst, like I really, I I think about this question a lot, like what were especially the precursor behaviors to me starting investing. And that was like I said, like playing the video game RuneScape online and Yu-Gi-Oh cards. So my first investment ever was actually, uh, I had $300 under my bed that I saved up over the years of playing Yu-Gi-Oh. And there was a card and I bought as many copies of it as I could, which was $9 each Um, in a month. I, they they skyrocketed and I sold them all for twenty to twenty seven dollars, so m- almost tripling my money. And that's after like paying some of the fees, and that's kind of like that was like my first like flip of stock, even though it was a Yu Gi Oh card, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of like when I found out about investing, which was through podcasts, like I said, like 
I'm I live in North Hollywood, so LA traffic is like a thing. And when I was commuting <laughs> to schools, yeah, I was commuting, and it was like an hour to two hours to get to like UCLA and back. And I would I would just listen to different podcasts, and I found like that. That's why, like, side note, like I'm so excited about what you're doing because what you're doing is is creating a podcast which is like accessible to people, so when they're driving, they can be learning, you know. And most people, I listen to the radio and kind of numb themselves but sometimes that that's healthy too but like I created a system where I would listen two days about each topic two days in a row I could listen to music two days in a row I could listen about politics two days in a row I could listen about investing to create that balance and when those two days about investing came in I would just hear about all these people building wealth with stocks and real estate but Stocks particularly got my attention because it's something that you can do from your home without leaving in your pajamas. Uh, so that really caught my attention. Um, there was a rapper, Reason. I'm really into rap. And he signed with Top Dog Entertainment with Kendrick Lamar, Schoolboy Q. And he had a post that like really resonated with me. He was like, I just made $400 flipping stocks from my bed. Is this how white people feel all the time? You know? <laughs> like that's great it's so so accessible like you don't have to like have a whole bunch of capital to start and that's something that also excited me about it so when I learned about investing and I did not know how it worked um I downloaded an app uh the app no longer functions but there are many alternatives to it uh such as best broker and it's a paper trading platform where they give you like uh like paper money it's not real and you can buy stocks in real time. So I got to feel like the psychological impact of buying a company and watching me lose thousands of dollars every single day and being like, just wait it out. And in a month, it'd be back or there would be profit and learning like all those like mistakes that traders make with real money, you know, on, on a paper platform. Um, I think some of the cons to learning from a paper platform, though, is it takes a long time to see the fruits of your labor when it comes to investing. People like people do think uh, day trading and flipping is investing, but it is a different ball game. So when Reason like posted that I made four hundred dollars, it, it's not probably he's talking about like flipping stocks or something. But investing is is a long term game for sure. And that's something that I learned from paper trading because I was trying to lock in profit every day. And I was like, you know, if I just held these stocks for the last month, I would have a lot less stress and I would have just watched them grow. Hmm. That's great. All right. So um, I think it's really common for people to have certain lim limiting beliefs or myths around investing, right? Especially if you don't understand how it works. So what are some of those common myths or limiting beliefs that people have? And what advice do you have on how to combat those? Right. So just mm, advice that I used in my own life, because I'm not a professional, like licensed, like financial advisor or anything, but like, this is stuff that worked for me when it comes to understanding investing. So a lot of things that I heard was investing is for rich people. Investing only works if you have, have a lot of money. And one of my least favorites is investing is gambling or investing is risky. And then of course, investing is evil and it supports like white supremacism and all of that. And people like make these posts or like, well, when Martin Luther King got assassinated, the market went up 
obviously it's evil. George Floyd uh, got murdered and assassinated on a live audience and the market rallied, right? And people draw all these correlations that really have nothing to do with stocks. And they tell all of these stories. And it's frustrating because I feel like that creates a barrier to people who otherwise would enter the market. They don't. And then they pass up building wealth in the most easiest way from your home in your pajamas without leaving your house. So when it comes to something like investing is not for rich people, it's actually the way to become rich, right? And mm -hmm. a true investor, they don't gamble, they invest. And the two are very, very different. Um, you hear all these horror stories of investing is gambling, investing, investing is risky, where people like bet their life savings on a stock and it just goes down and down and disappears or or they talk about companies like Blockbuster, which like vanished, you know, and all that money is lost or Toys R Us. But when you invest, when you learn about investing and learn how it really works, all of a sudden you're like, I don't have to take on that kind of risk if I don't want to. And all of my money can have a different mission. Like if you have $100, $2 can be for extremely high risk uh, stocks, right? Um, like single stocks or even options trading or something like that. And, and then the rest of it can be an index funds, which means you're buying all of the stocks. So you're getting blockbusters and Toys R Us's, which will go out of business, but you're also getting uh, the Googles and the Amazons and the Disneys, and you're getting uh, the Teslas, which skyrocket. So you're getting the average of everything. And that's one way to make investing less risky. And you don't have to put all of your eggs in the same basket. You can have, like I said, high risk money, low risk money, and just average money that is in index funds. So those are some ways to really combat that. Earlier, I mentioned like investing is evil. Like why would the market go up when George Floyd got assassinated, right? And there, there's all sorts of stories you can tell about something that has a large amount of data because the stock market is a reflection of all of our behavior when it comes to people investing. So if you want to be represented in that, you should be investing. And when it comes to like uh, world events like terrorism, right? Um, if we get like big attacks or pe famous people get assassinated and the market rallies or the market drops, like there is no certain story when it comes to mass human behavior. You never know how the market will react. And it might not even be reacting to the things that you think is big news. Right. So we had mm -hmm. the Paris attacks that happened and everyone was expecting it happened, I believe, on a Friday and everyone expected a market crash on Monday, just like with 9-11. And it just never happened. The market did not react. So there is no certain story that you can tell. But people do because it's clickbait. People say Bernie got knocked out as a front runner. Oh, market is up 3% because of that. A lot of things happened across the world, things that you may not have considered. And it's also the intersection of all of these events. You have no idea how it'll affect human behavior. Um, so that's something that, that I think are terrible myths about the market that need to be broken, that we need to keep like talking about um, and and just like fighting because it excludes so many people from starting. Yeah, I think it's important to remember at the end of the day, the market is controlled by people and people are completely unpredictable. So it's important to remember that just because something's happening in the stock market doesn't mean it's a reflection of the economy or the greater society in general. Exactly. And on that note, um, I want to expand that and to say it's not just people, like you're not just 
predicting human behavior. You're predicting algorithms. Robots are, are buying and selling stocks and you get unprecedented events like flash crashes, which is like investors from 50 years ago. They didn't have to think about like a robot selling off stocks super fast and you get a 20% crash in a single day, which happened in 1987, which is just shocking to everyone. They thought of this is it. This is the collapse. The robots have taken over. But the next day, everything is healed up and, you know, things are back to normal because we're dealing with robot behavior now. Mm, that's an important point. All right. So I'm curious, how does investing tie into bridging the wealth gap, right? We hear so much about the wealth gap, when it, whether it's from a racial perspective, whether it's from a gender perspective. So why should people care about building wealth from a socioeconomic standpoint? Okay. So one thing to mention about like building wealth it does not solve a lot of the socioeconomic problems. It just doesn't, but it helps, right? Building wealth won't stop police from targeting black and brown people. It just won't, right? Um, people will still fear you because of the way you look. Just, it, just because you have a million dollars in the bank doesn't necessarily change that, but it does make you less dependent on the system, right? It, it creates... Um, it creates an opportunity for you that otherwise would not exist. So we see things like, uh, as slow as it is, we do see rates of income gradually increasing for people who otherwise it didn't. And I'm talking about women, especially white women, and people of color who are, of course, like the money gap, the wealth gap is not filling fast enough. But one of the reasons it's not filling fast enough isn't because income isn't gradually growing. It could be growing a lot faster between us. Um, but because people who have been investing for decades, especially white people, because they had the access to it, their money is growing so fast that that wealth gap is growing um, at an alarming rate. And it's not because people aren't making more money. It's because you cannot keep up with that compound interest because stocks grow like that. When a stock goes up 10% a year, you know, the first year, $100 becomes 110. But the next year, it's 121. That extra dollar, it came from the compound interest. And decades of that turns into just unimaginable amounts of wealth. A lot of people like um, to go back uh, for a second, a lot of people were saying like um, one of the myths about like building wealth and why it's so evil. If you save something like $500 a day from the days of like the colonizer Columbus, you're still not going to get to a billion dollars. But if you wow. just invested that, you would be sitting on trillions and trillions of dollars, right? So investing can build, bridge the wealth gap. It's just going to take time. And that's something that I talk about a lot, generational wealth. It's not about you. It's about the people that come after you. And this can take decades. However, your life will be a lot easier because you're not counting on a system that may not consider you as a fully-fledged human being. You're mm. prioritizing your own social security. You never know who will be in power in the future. But you do know, for the most part, whoever is in power is still dependent on the stock market in some way, shape, or form. So if your voice is represented in the stock market, well, then they can't hurt you as much. Um, you have your own wealth growing. And something like saving $100 a month uh, investing it from age 18 will give you such a huge safety net in the future that 
you will have close to a million dollars by like age 65, you know, and, and people are like, well, I don't want to be doing that. But I'm like, okay, that's just a hundred dollars a month in the future. You'll probably increase your income and you'll be able to invest and save a lot more and get to that million point a lot sooner. And who needs a million dollars to be independent? You don't need a million dollars. You could do that with half a million. How many people right now lives would change if they had a hundred thousand just sitting in stocks, right? They would not be as worried about coronavirus. So it's not about reaching like these unachievable standards that some people place, like be a billionaire or even have a million by 30. Like Great. If that works for you, that works for you. But a lot of people would be satisfied with $100,000 by 30, and that will change their life and the generations to come forever. So that's why I'm so passionate about bridging the wealth gap through investing. You cannot depend on your employer to give you a 7% raise, but you can depend on the stock market with its 100 years of data giving approximately 7% returns. People go wild when they get a 50, a 50 cent increase or a dollar increase. What if you could get thousands extra a month by investing? You don't have to ask permission to do that. You don't count on an employer or someone in a position of power. You create your own position of power through investing. I freaking love everything that you said. And I think there are so many people having conversations, especially around uh, black wealth in this country, right? There was mm -hmm. a report that came out that said that by 2053, the median wealth of black Americans will fall to zero if right. things continue as is. That first is just a shocking number. And I'm sure that the number correlates very well to what is expected for Latino households too. So my question to you with regards to that is like, what can people do from a practical perspective to just start building wealth? Because I think it's like, it's like a now or never situation. It sounds like. It kind of, because I don't think it's now or never, because I okay. think it's always the time to start to invest. For example, two months ago was one of the greatest transfers of wealth that has ever occurred in United States history, and people just slept on it. Um, you were able to buy dollars from the rich for 69 cents. Imagine you walked into a store and they said, do you want to buy a dollar? 69 cents. That is what the stock market did. Those opportunities do happen. But um, Peter Lynch, founder of Merrill Edge, I don't know if he's problematic or not, but he's a, he's <laughs> a great, great investor. And, and he says most people lose money waiting for these opportunities, waiting for these crashes and corrections, than during these crashes and corrections. Uh, I know people who sat out of the market all the way in 2010 just waiting for it to crash again. Well, if they waited till 2020, they got a 31% crash where they could trade 69 cents for a dollar. However, it only brought us back to 2015 prices. So mm -hmm. they still missed out five years of compound interest, which is just such a painful loss. So the best thing people can do is start now. It is always the time to invest. People, people waiting for crashes miss out. It is always, always the time to invest. Um, it starts now. And one of the strategies that I use is... My grandma, who basically, she knew nothing about stocks. Absolutely nothing. But... 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash dinero. She knew about preserving money because emergencies happen. So she she was born on July 24th. And every 24th, I invest as much of my paycheck as I can. I use every privilege that I have to put that wealth towards the future. Um, and, and I created that system that's kind of spiritual to me. It's based on, you know, my ancestors. And I think that People don't see money as a spiritual thing, but it's as spiritual as you make it. Um, so it's it's currency. It's a current. It's a flow. It needs to be moving. So people waiting for opportunities, their money is sitting in the bank, which, by the way, hates them, and their bank is using their money and investing it in stocks. So they might as well be doing it themselves and claiming that power for themselves. And it starts now. But I do want to say that is not completely on the individuals. In the United States, we... We, we have this privilege of living in a country like this, which a lot of brokerage firms, they actually allow you to invest for free. This was not a thing in 2014. This just happened mm-hmm. recently. So apps like Robinhood, apps like Charles Schwab, apps like SoFi, they let you trade for free. And unfortunately, there's apps uh, and brokerage firms that that were leaders in inclusivity, like Vanguard, that started the index fund that said you don't need to pay money managers uh, 
like hundreds of thousands of dollars through your investing history. You don't need to do that. You can just buy an index and it's practically uh, almost free with the expense ratio, the management fee. But now though, Vanguard is so behind where you need $3,000 just to buy those index funds on their platform. So I'm, I'm furious that, that they're, they were leaders and they're, they're now like so far behind compared to like these noobs that just came onto the field, like Robin Hood. We're like, oh, just trade for free. No minimums. Buy whatever you want. And and in the last year, what's amazing is partial shares were released. And this should be in textbooks because this makes investing more accessible than ever before. You don't need $2,400 to buy a share of Amazon if you want to do that because Jeff Bezos is scheduled to be the first trillionaire. You might as well profit with him. But if you don't have $2,400, you can't profit like that. But now on SoFi, on Charles Schwab, on Robinhood, I believe on Fidelity as well, you can yep. buy $5 of it. Yeah, I've actually started doing that too because, yeah, like you said, a lot of these like super high price stocks like the Googles and the Amazons of the world, they were inaccessible to people for the longest. And now you can literally buy $50 worth, $100 worth. And I remember the days of Vanguard and their $7 commissions for trades. And so I think we've come a long way. It's amazing how you really just you can invest, like you said, completely for free. And so now it's just a matter of educating yourself to be in a place where you can start doing it because the barriers to access from from that perspective, I think, have pretty much been eliminated at this point. Exactly. Exactly. In the United States. However, these same yeah. brokerage firms like Charles Schwab, they charge you still in Australia. Right. Mm. So I still think that we it's our responsibility as people who are like passionate about finances to target uh, companies like Vanguard, like Charles Schwab, to make them make investing accessible for all. Uh, of course, there are things we don't understand, but what I learned about Charles Schwab in the last year about their revolutionary move to get rid of uh, fees uh, was that was only three percent of their company's profit. You know, mm. and and now so many more people are joining in like it, it's right now, like the United States is learning, like if if black people are not on board with your company, you're not going to make money. Imagine mm -hmm. if they targeted populations uh, that were always disenfranchised and we're like, you know what? You don't have these barriers to invest anymore. They will profit. And so will the people investing. So it's a win. win. Yeah, that makes so much sense. All right. So I want to touch on something because this is an election year and we all know how um, involved politics and money are. They're intertwined and they're pretty much a standard when it comes to the American political process and the election. So I'm curious on your thoughts about how politics affects our money. Right. So, of course, there is so much coming from the institutional sides of things, from the systemic sides of things. I like to focus on what the individual can do. And ultimately, we will need communities. We will need some sorts of revolutions. We will need some sorts of institutional change. But I don't think we should count on that happening anytime soon. Now, we can hope for it, and I'm hoping for it too. But I don't think it's practical to wait on a government to change so you can build wealth. I think that there is enough out there right now where a lot of people who aren't involved in building wealth through stocks could be, and they don't analyze their privilege to do so because, well, I think, I think what Aristotle says is true. Humans are political animals. 
um, which means that everything we do is political. It's not just the laws and the people who are politicians that are political. The way we eat, how we talk, who we talk to, what we watch, where we watch it, and especially how we spend money are all political actions, right? Money is a way of voting. Whether you agree with that or not, it is reality. Um, so of course, like there were institutional changes where like money equals a voice. So people with more money who compounded for the last 500 years, their wealth, which of course came from, you know, slavery and things like that. Um, and their wealth compounded, they have more of a vote in the political system, but money is also, there's other ways to vote with it. So if you're buying a hot Cheeto bag every day after school, you're voting for hot Cheetos to fill your community. And of course, there's food deserts, which makes it your only choice. So it becomes a catch-22. I vote for Hot Cheetos, but Hot Cheetos is one of the few things that's available. Um, but we also have people of privilege who are not engaging in these daily politics, not analyzing what they're voting for when they go to a store, not having a shopping list that reflects their values, going in hungry, or not knowing how these capitalistic stores work where they arrange their stores of, with psychological principles to influence your behavior to buy things that you don't need or buy brands that are higher costing. Um, these are all political daily moves that you don't need a government to change to have power over. It's all about going on YouTube and researching how do grocery stores take my money? Um, what can I do to use my money better? So we need to create, in my opinion, temporary frameworks of privilege, because of course it's important, important to think of privilege in terms of race, class, gender. However, that is not always applicable to your life in the moment. You have your own uh, way of defining privilege that only you can come to by analyzing your behavior and analyzing your life and your habits. And this is not going to be in a textbook. This is not going to be in a forum. Only you can do it by sitting down and calculating your privileges in a way that is not taught. You have to teach it to yourself. And that is a political move. It's a revolutionary act to calculate uh, your own behaviors when the whole system is just counting on you to be on autopilot. Um, it, one example of this is when people go to Starbucks, right? And between like everyone listening, I never tasted Starbucks coffee in my life. So I don't know what <laughs> oh I'm gosh. missing. Yeah, I don't know what I'm missing out on. Um, but I've never tasted coffee. Remember at the beginning I said food phobia? Yeah, coffee is mm -hmm. one of those things that scare me. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 odd, but it saved me a lot of money because what I mean by calculating your privilege and reframing the world around you without waiting for institutions to do it for you, I mean that you go to Starbucks two to three times a week, but do you think about it as a $1,000 subscription? No, mm. you don't. Uh, reframing it, calculating privilege in your own way. And again, I'm not taking away from the scholars and activists who say, look, we need to look at privilege through the lens of uh, sex category, gender, um, class, race, religion. Uh, that's important. But what's also important is your personal definition to know when it is okay to use um, the, the scholarly worlds, the activist worlds, uh, or the progressive worlds definitions of privilege, and when it is okay to stop that for a moment 
and leave that framework, create your own that affects your life in its unique way. Because no book, no scholar, no activist can analyze privilege the way it works for you, your individual self. They don't know all of the intersections. You know, like you might be a Russian woman from the Soviet Union, but you're also abandoned by a man who typically in your culture provides money. That may not be, there might not be a lot of people that you could connect to with that. You might also have a baby. You might also have family members overseas that would help you out. So all of those intersections of privilege are extremely important for an individual to analyze on themselves. And if you want to change the world, I believe in the cliche phrase, you have to change yourself. Mm. Love, love, love it. I am, I'm just mind blown by the the knowledge you're sharing with us today. So I think I know the answer to this next question, but I'm curious what actually inspired you to start your YouTube channel and what are your goals with the platform? So there are so many YouTube videos and I watched them all. I watched every video on Roth IRAs. I watched every video <laughs> on how to become a millionaire by investing in stocks. I learned and studied each YouTube creator of how they tailor to their audience. And there's a certain audience that things are not tailored for. And this is for the people who don't have the privilege to watch a 15-minute video with nine ads to learn about stocks. You know, you have kids crying. You have uh, 14, uh, like, you have three jobs, sorry, three jobs. You're sleeping six hours a day. You have two minutes while you're on the toilet. I made a one-minute and 30-second video telling you what an index fund is. And on your next toilet trip, there's another one-minute and 30-second video on what dollar cost averaging is, how you can invest on your own created system every single month or bi-monthly or even once a year if you want to do that and, and create a system for yourself. So you don't need to spend 15 minutes and nine ads to learn how to invest. I created a YouTube channel where most of my videos are under five minutes. And if it's crucial information, I made a two minute video or a one minute and 30 second video in this case. The problem with this approach is the algorithm will never ever push those videos. It just won't happen uh, because the algorithm is designed to keep you on YouTube for as long as possible to watching as many ads as possible. So unfortunately, it's very unlikely for my channel Financialism on YouTube to get this naturalistic push or even like an algorithmic push because it wants to push longer videos, videos that when my channel gets monetized, will be able to have four ads on it. You know, there is this capitalistic sense to YouTube, even though YouTube, I believe, is the free education that we've been like asking the government to give us. Everything I learned about stocks was free. I never paid a dollar for it. Um, that's a lie. I did take one class for $100 at UCLA just to see, but I could have done without it, in my opinion. I, I do think that there could be courses and classrooms and money coaches that can benefit your situation specifically. Um, for example, my friend uh, Hear Me Finance, she has like a really cool course and she didn't ask me to plug this or anything. I'm just saying because I really think it's cool because I see the way she promotes it and she tailors it to your specific intersection of privilege, something that the books don't talk about, you know, something that the mm -hmm. activists don't talk about because it's individualized. And in that sense, yes, paying for like a coach could be beneficial, but I believe that it should be free. I believe that it should be accessible 
and that's why I make my channel the way it is. Flash finance, a bunch of short videos. Of course, there are 10-minute videos where I go more into like in-depth compound uh, topics because I do want uh, people who have more time to kind of think about investing in a different way. But the terms... Uh, the essential terms, I believe, should be accessible for everyone who doesn't have the privilege of time. Again, we don't talk about privilege when it comes to time. Uh, that's why it's so important to break down privilege by your own terms, by your own life. So that's kind of like the framework, the belief behind my YouTube channel. And in the future, I hope to like create a playlist with 100 terms. So when you click it, you can listen to two videos and three minutes past. That's awesome. And I think it's so important. People's attention spans nowadays, they don't even last long enough to watch a five minute long video. So right. I think that your approach is awesome. And so it's going to be up to all of us to boost financialism and to spread the word because what you're doing is awesome. And shout out to Judy from Hear Me Finance because she is a rock star. I love her. She is definitely a big rock star. Um, and, and on that note, what you said, um, YouTube actually shows me analytics and I'm seeing that people are are watching uh, my short videos to 80% completion, which is mm. extremely rare on YouTube. Usually most YouTubers hope for 50% as good. So I'm seeing that the shorter videos do work. And, and that means people are getting the full knowledge out of it. So it's not really about me. So if anyone's listening and they have a YouTube platform that's bigger than mine, because I'm still under a thousand sub subscribers, like there's definitely a desire for this. And maybe you can do a similar playlist because it, it's about getting the knowledge out there. For sure. All right. So what advice do you have for first time investors who might be just like freaked out about starting and, and just don't know where to begin? So my first piece, again, like not a financial advisor, but this is stuff that I did and things that I learned off of is do not wait till you know everything about investing. You never will. I know people who wanted to invest, like I said, since 2010, and they're still waiting for the perfect opportunity to start. But prices for most stocks are nowhere near 2010 prices. So the sooner you start, even if you know nothing, is, is probably the best time to start. Um, now, another place that people start, especially younger investors, is they start with things like Forex, which is currency trading. Then they level up to day trading, where they like try to flip stocks really quickly. And then finally, they get to value investing, which is Warren Buffett's mentality. He's one of the greatest investors of our time, at least when it comes to the stock market. And that's buying companies that will go up in value. He bought things like Coca-Cola. He bought things like Seize Candy, things that will leave cultural impact and will be here for generations and outlive any presidents or reign um, or, or entire like yeah, just entire generations. That's value investing. But finally, the best way to invest for most people is just buying index funds. It's the most boring way to invest. But uh, people set, have a saying that if your investing isn't boring, then you're probably doing something wrong. Um, I think JL Collins would totally agree with that sentiment. Right. Um <laughs> And I actually don't know who that is. I don't know a lot of investing names, which shows that you don't need to know all the big bosses, like names like Jack Bogle from Vanguard, who created the index fund, or Warren Buffett. It, investing, you don't have to know everything. You just don't. Mm -hmm. um, and I know um, 
so so sorry index funds again is buying the top 500 companies all in one share and there's so many ways to do that one of my favorites is charles schwab and they have ticker symbol swppx which is an index fund that just tracks the top 500 companies fidelities is fxaix that's how i remember it and their expense ratio or management fee is even cheaper than charles schwab but ultimately knowing everything like i said who has the cheapest expense ratio who's the most accessible who has partial shares like it's okay to start your journey on robin hood and then end up on charles schwab and then fidelity and when vanguard becomes woke again to go back to vanguard it's okay to have multiple brokerage accounts. You don't need to find the best one. You don't need to even buy the best stocks. You just need to start. That's the only advice. So if you're listening to this and you're like, okay, I don't have money to invest. I'm still paying off debt and it's high interest credit card debt. I can't invest. Make the account. You can make the account. Be ready. It's like if you're, it's, this is my behavior analytical side coming out. If you want to do a workout and you hate working outs, the night before you go to sleep, get your weights and put them in the middle of the living room. So when you wake up, you're either going to trip over them or you're going to do a little five-minute workout. Same thing with, with Charles Schwab. Look, you don't have the money to invest. You have high interest debt. You didn't understand you 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 didn't understand your privilege about money yet. You didn't understand how horrible credit card fees are and that most people are paying millions if they live long enough to credit card companies which hate them when they could be investing in stocks. People don't understand that yet, but hey, you don't need to know everything to start. It takes four minutes and 36 seconds to make a Charles Schwab investing account. And I have a video where I did that. I literally rushed and made it as fast as I can. Of course, like if you take the time to read everything, it'll take 10 minutes, but you can just follow my video and make your Charles Schwab account with me, with a friend. And it's just four minutes, 36 seconds, you have an account. So in a year or in five, when you're ready to invest and you paid off all of your debt, Go for it. You're already ready. Amazing. Yeah. Just start. That is the message we're driving home. Just start. All right. So I want to touch on a topic that you have pretty, um, you have this belief about community investing. So what does that actually mean? So this is something that I think comes from like, intelligence and but what i mean by intelligence it's not about being smart it's about being creative so when you're looking at money and this is why vanguard cough needs to make investing inclusive because when people who are new to investing like i was in 2015 go into it they're gonna have radically new concepts and radically new ideas about investing that the traditional person doesn't think of so most of my mentors at ucla were like radical feminist lesbian activists who were like fully communistic in their ways so that plays a huge role on my investing imagination so one of the first things i thought of was of course generational wealth and building wealth for the future and we can escape the race of capitalism by creating generational wealth um but another thing that i thought of is what if we make community buckets like that just invest for the whole community um I believe there's a few ETFs on this and I just started learning about it. And my friend whose hashtag whose handle is my wealth diary, she mentioned like um, a few corporations like joining together and donating money through ETFs to communities. I don't know much about that. Don't quote me on that. Um, but there's all these revolutionary things happening that are just different from the traditional. I'm building wealth for myself and the three people I'm most closely related to and my partner. 
right? Mm. So community investing is investing for the whole community. That, that's as simple as it sounds. Instead of a community paying credit card companies, which hate them, what if they pile that same amount of money, which is, I think, over a trillion dollars now, into their community? Of course, there's people who have to uh, go to credit card companies, who have to go to loan sharks to survive. And that's just capitalism for you. Um, I do believe that that would happen at a lot less rates if people sat down and analyzed their privilege in a way that's unique to themselves. Um, but my ultimate idea about community investing, and I did the math. I'm, I'm not a math guy, but I did the math. And if we invest $150 a month, and we receive, I just put 10% interest because the stock market did give back about 10%, um, not accounting for inflation for the last 100 years. Um, and we, we do that for 117 years. Yes, we're all probably going to die, but it's not about us. It's about creating a system for the next generation where they don't have to suffer these, these money issues that we do. You know, the stress of money needs to die with us. And 117 years, $150 a month, 10% interest leads to $1.25 billion, right? That is an incredible amount of money to just leave for the next generation by just putting aside $150 a month. Uh, most people believe you need to have that generational wealth from the days of, of Christopher Columbus in order to have a billion dollars today, unless you're Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates and you create a company or something like that. You don't have to have a Forbes listed company to create a billion dollar legacy for people who are going to live over a hundred years from now. And if 10 million people did this, you can you will have uh, 10 million accounts with $1.25 billion. 4% of 1.25 billion is, shoot, my number's off. It, it, I believe it's 50 million. Uh, I, I would fact check that if the zero's off or anything, but I believe it's 50 million and I did check it, but like when it comes to math, I get anxious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but I believe it's 50 million. And imagine you give that to 50 people. Like I'm not here to like say like how money should work in the future, but like the numbers, based on the numbers, we will have... Uh, 10 million accounts that did this. That's uh, 10 million um, buckets of 1.25 billion. And that is enough to sustain 500 million people with $1 million. And and that, that's not even the, the most incredible part of it. Why did I pick 4%? Well, we know about like the 4% rule, which is um, the stock market typically gives 7 to 10% returns. And I know in this example, I use 10%. Um, but but that means if you withdraw 4% from that 1.25 billion bucket, that money is going to... Re Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Generate within a year back to where it was over the long run. Um, so people normally think of the 4% as living off of their stocks forever, but I'm like, wait, you can create a world 
that has infinite money, you know, mm -hmm. and this money is, is flowing within companies who are creating uh, to the needs of the world of the future. So it foresees for that a lot. A basic question people ask is like, okay, well, Blockbuster is no longer in the S&P 500. So like what happens to the money that I had in it? The S&P 500 index automatically adjusts for that. You don't need to think about that. So companies that will exist 100 years from now, your uh, your $150 a month bucket that will lead to $1.25 billion is going to adjust for that. Um, and I don't think enough people think about this idea. And this is a raw idea. This is just one idea about thinking about investing, not as just an individual person, but as a community of people. And I don't think enough like OGs in the investing world think about investing this way. I wrote Warren Buffett a letter telling him about this. <laughs> I don't know if he opened it. Uh, maybe he didn't want to because of coronavirus. I don't take it personally, Warren Buffett. But if you do read it, I think it is a great idea, um, especially because he, he already has about 60 of these $1.25 billion buckets that can sustain millions and millions of people. Absolutely. That's a revolutionary idea. It's fascinating. And for people who really want to implement this, like on a more like local scale, like think about your families, right? Like you can have a meeting with your family, your extended family. Maybe you get 10, 20 people to commit to making this investment and you're creating a pot of generational wealth that is going to transform like your entire extended family. So I think this is a brilliant idea and I hope that this becomes a thing because I think it could change the world. That's, that's the way that I look at investing. It, it really really changes if if i haven't met those like radical lesbian uh activists who are like communist minded at ucla who who like demonstrated with angela davis and marched the streets and did all of that i would not have this idea so like all credit goes to generations of struggle that led to something that i could even imagine something like this but that's the whole point like money is political money is the way that we express ourselves whether that's good or not um, I, I don't know, but it is a reality. And that's why I take reality very seriously. Money is a social construct, but so is race and you are treated based on it. So I treat it like it's real, even though it's just paper. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm so happy that you took the time to be here and to talk about all of these amazing concepts that maybe some of you have not heard and some are just like reinforcing things that you're already doing. So for anybody that wants to continue to follow financialism, where can we find out more about you and follow your journey? Yeah, well, you can definitely find me on Instagram, financialism. I mean, Instagram slash financialism, uh, youtube.com slash financialism. I'm at the moment, really reachable. I do have like a bunch of DMs coming through. I'm not flexing. Like I, I think it's great. Uh, the more DMs, the better. And I'm trying to mechanize that where I can respond to everyone at the same time. And I started working with these 32 uh, person investing pods in my Instagram account where every day or every other day I sent a finance term. So not everyone's going to be able to even have that minute and 30 seconds to watch one of my videos, but it's about the information and the knowledge. So I just summarize it and it'll take you 20 seconds to read it and you'll be able to hopefully actively change your life. So that's something that I'm working on. And that is a way you can reach me on YouTube. I read every single comment, of course, and I try to reply to everything all the time. 
So those are the two places you could reach me. And if you want to be in a 32-person investing group, I do try to make those approximately one every three weeks. And it's been going really well. And it's a, it's, it's a lot to like definitely like be in charge of with 32 different uh, people in your group. But I usually have one other like financial like beast who's like obsessed with money. I have like financial advisors, people who work in banks, and there's usually at least one other person with me who can answer like any pressing questions and stuff like that, creating little 32 person communities where we don't necessarily share our financial details, but we do review like terms and things like that. And once we know each other better, the groups that I had for a couple months, we do talk about like our individual situations and our individual investments. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that idea. I think um, that kind of reminds me of like accountability groups where you just are encouraging each other and you're educating each other and you're kind of, it's always important. And this is what I love about the personal finance community. It's like they you find a group of like-minded people and it encourages you to continuously learn and to evolve. And then you share information. And I think that's how we all just move ahead and level up. So that's great that you're doing that. And I, like I said, I really appreciate your time and thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for letting me be here. I hope that you are ready to dismantle every institution that is holding you and your community back from building the wealth that we rightfully deserve. I'm so grateful to Georgie and all the work that he's doing through his platform on YouTube and Instagram to educate and spread the word that investing is in fact for everybody and for communities of color and marginalized communities. We are revolutionaries just by investing, okay? Let that marinate with you because investing is actually a revolutionary act. And if you ask me, it's a very patriotic duty for us to manifest the wealth that we deserve and make this country what it was intended to be, a place that allegedly promises liberty, justice, and equality for all. Rise up, rise up. It's time to take a shot. As a reminder, if you're loving the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast, please make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share. That way, amazing listeners like you can find us too. We want everybody out here being poderosa with their money. And so if they know about us, they can start doing that too. If you don't already follow us on social media, make sure that you follow the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and even TikTok. Yep, we're doing TikToks too. And don't forget to visit the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast blog, where you can find episode show notes, as well as personal finance articles, news about events, and more. Until next time, guys, stay inspired, stay confident, and stay poderosa.
On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.